I assume for those of us in this room today, you are here because you have some concept of Jesus. You are here because whether you believe in Jesus or you're seeking Jesus, you have some idea of who Jesus is, what Jesus is, the whole reason that you're here. You may not have it all figured out, but you're here for a reason. If you're joining us online today, the same thing. You are seeking something about Jesus. And who would say, I've been in church or you've been in church for at least 10 years you've attended church in your life? Who's been a part of a church for, uh, since basically you came out of the womb? All of us raising our hands right now, you have an idea of who Jesus is. But here's the question we're going to tackle today. What if Jesus isn't who we thought He was? What if Jesus, the guy who you follow, whatever you call Him, however you look at Him, what if He's not who you think He is? That's a question that we, really all Christians, or all people need to wrestle with. Is He really who we think He is? Is Jesus really who we claim Him to be, or do we have this whole Jesus thing totally wrong? We're in week two now of our series Reboot, looking at how we can have a better life. What are the ways that we can have a better life? And as we tackle this, we're going through the book of Colossians. We're going to answer this question today. What if Jesus isn't really who you think He is? Because if we get the answer to this wrong, then we spend our entire life chasing a Jesus or serving a Jesus or claiming a Jesus that doesn't even exist. And if we do it that way, if we don't have this answer correct in our life, you will never achieve the better life. You will never achieve the life that that is set out for us by our God to have. So what if Jesus isn't who we thought He was? Christy and I started dating when I was 18 years old. Who thinks that's way too young to get married? I did too. I didn't get married until I was 19 years old. So we dated for... uh, We were friends, and then we started dating when I was 18. We dated for less than a year, got married. And the first couple of years of our marriage, uh, things got a little restless. Not by her, by me. Um... I was young. I, I had an expectation of marriage. I'd never seen a, a good example of marriage in my life because uh, other than my grandparents, all of my family had been through terrible marriages. Um, and my grandparents, my grandfathers, had both died when I was very young. So I'd never seen a, a good example of marriage. I had a twisted view of what marriage should be. So those first couple of years began to get a little restless because, well, marriage wasn't what I expected. And Christy wasn't who I thought she was. When we got married, I had an idea of who she was and what I expected marriage to be, and it wasn't anything like that. Um, It was a lot better. I had a, a very shallow concept of marriage, though. Because as we got into a marriage and started living it out, especially at 19, 20 years old, 21 years old, you begin to realize that there's a lot less freedom in marriage than you thought there was going to be because, well, you're responsible to somebody else. Uh, there's a, a lot less freedom. There's a lot more sacrifice than is expected. Our marriage could have very easily ended in those first couple of years. Very easily ended. 
Christy didn't let it end. She said, if, we, if this ends, it's on you, is basically what she told me. I ain't leaving. If it ends, you're leaving. So I stayed. I could have missed out on 26 years now of uh, bills. I could have missed out on 26 years of making mistakes. 26 years of disappointment. Could have missed out on 26 years of joy friendship celebration we've had tons to celebrate could have missed out on 26 years of family that I wouldn't have had all because I had this shallow concept of what marriage really was no idea what it really should look like 26 years into this I think we're both probably still trying to figure out what it looks like but you know what it's good it's worth the fight it's worth um, making it through that tough stretch. Everyone has a concept of who God is. Most of us, as we enter into a relationship with God or start seeking God, our idea of who God is is very shallow. It's not a very deep concept of who God is. Most of us, if we have a concept of God, really, if we're honest, everyone on the face of the planet has a concept of God. Scripture tells us that everyone does just because of creation. So everyone has a concept of God, whether they believe in God or not. If they don't, that's their concept of God, that there is no God. There is, everyone has a concept. Most of us in this room, joining us online, most people have some sort of concept of who Jesus is. Now, some people get it wrong. We, we hear it said of Jesus by other religions, by other teachers, by other people out in society uh, that Jesus is a great leader. He was a great leader. But we hear it said that Jesus is a great teacher. He wasn't a great teacher. He was the best teacher. Uh, we hear it said that, oh, Jesus was, was this philosopher. Well, he knew everything about philosophy. Still knows everything about philosophy. But that's not enough to explain who Jesus is. But you know, the most dangerous ideas that we get of who Jesus is, they really come from those who claim Jesus. They come from churches, from leaders, from pastors, from writers who claim things about Jesus that are not even close to being true. From other sects of our religious system like Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witness and all kinds of different, we would call them sects of religion, or even from other denominations, even within our own denomination, we hear false teachings about who Jesus is. It's way too shallow, not deep enough. It doesn't give Him glory at all. It just makes us feel better about who we are. But you know, I get some comfort when I read Scripture about having questions because you know who else had questions? The disciples had questions. They're with Jesus. They're seeing Him do these things. Even they had questions. And in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, they say, Who is this man? As he has calmed the, the sea and the storm, the waves, he's calmed them. And they're like, I didn't expect him to do that. Who is he? I, I don't understand what's going on. Even the disciples had the question, Who is this man? So who is the Jesus that you know? Who is the Jesus that 
If you're a Christian, who's the Jesus that you're claiming to follow? If you're not a Christian and you're just here kind of seeking, who's the Jesus you're looking for? What is your concept of Jesus? Who is the Jesus you know? Which Jesus do you follow? As we dig into Scripture today, what we're going to see, the overarching message from this passage is, if Jesus isn't supreme, Jesus is not sufficient. If He is not, in other words, if He's not supreme, if He's not in charge of it all, He's not enough. There's something lacking in Jesus. So let's think about that word supreme. What comes to mind when you hear the word supreme? Anybody want to throw one out there? Say it louder, I'm deaf. Pizza, we got pizza. Who thinks of a supreme pizza? I saw one, uh, I think it was yesterday, might have been the day before, and I had for a supremely supreme pizza. That doesn't make sense, but hey, I guess that's good marketing. So who thinks of a supreme pizza when you think of the word supreme? Um, how about uh, supreme, um, what's his name, supreme emperor Snoke? Is that what they call him in Star Wars? Supreme leader Snoke, that's right. Who thinks of Snoke? Anybody? We got any Star Wars people? All right, wrong illustration. Uh, how about, this will tell us who the older people are in the crowd, how about the Supremes? There we go. We got a few who know who the Supremes are, who has no idea who the Supremes are. Oh, it's good R&B, good old school music. Gosh, y'all need to listen to some Supreme stuff. How about, uh, this is probably the one I think of, Bojangles? Chicken Supremes. Y'all ever had Chicken Supremes? They're just chicken tenders, but they call them chicken supremes because they're the best, right? There's really, yeah. The definition of that word supreme is something of the highest rank or full authority or sovereign or being in charge of everything. It is the greatest, it is the utmost, it is the final, it is the ultimate. If Jesus isn't that, if Jesus isn't supreme, he is not sufficient. If your Jesus is not the utmost, if He is not the final authority, the highest rank in your life, if He's not sovereign over all of it, He's not enough for what you claim. The book of Colossians, there was a heresy going on. That's why Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians. And this heresy that's going on, heretical false teaching that was going on at the time, there were several. But one of the primaries was, it was a mixture of Greek mysticism and Jewish legalism. And it would eventually become known as, some of you may have heard the term Gnosticism before, that's really what this was rooted in, was going on at this time. And what Gnosticism is, is these people, these teachers, they're claiming that they have a deeper knowledge of God than anybody else has. Like they have a direct line to God, they know more about God, so they are like the supreme people. So they're claiming this deeper knowledge of God, and some of them, they're equating Jesus with angels, saying that Jesus and angels, they're on the same level, they're kind of the same thing, Jesus is just one of the, the primary angels, one of the supreme angels, but He's just an angel. They're saying He, is, he was a created being. Uh, they are denying His deity. They're not saying that Jesus was God. They're not saying Jesus is even a part of God. They're saying Jesus is just a being who was created. But they deny that He even had a body because they believed that if someone had a body, that all matter, everything, the chair you're sitting in, your body, everything, if it is created, it is inherently evil. 
So they were teaching that if Jesus had a body, then he had to be inherently evil. So they're saying he's just a spiritual thing. He's the same as the angels. He is not a God. He, is not, he has no humanity. So Paul writes this letter in response to them because the Colossians were off on a good start as a church, but this was starting to creep in, and some of them were starting to listen to these false teachings. So let's look at the second part of chapter 1. We covered the first part of chapter 1 two weeks ago. If you missed that, you can view it on our YouTube channel or on our website. Go catch up if you want to. Here's the second part of chapter 1. Beginning in verse 15, here's what Paul writes about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's just squashed the whole idea of Jesus being angelic because he's saying if the angels exist, Jesus was responsible for creating them. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile, reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That passage was one of the primary texts that the early church used in order to answer their questions about who Jesus is. They would refer to this text early in the formation of the church in the first couple of centuries to figure out who is this Jesus who we are following. Because this passage in, in Colossians, while the whole New Testament and really all of Scripture speaks to the supremacy of Christ, there is no book in the Bible, and especially that passage, that amplifies more, more who Jesus is. There's no text that speaks to it more than that. Paul is saying Jesus is preeminent, which means Jesus is supreme. He is the ultimate authority. He is the final. He's the greatest. There is no other than Jesus. And because of his supremacy, Jesus is sufficient. That is Paul's conclusion here through this passage. Is that the Jesus that you know? Is that the Jesus who you claim to follow, who you talk about, who you read about? Is that who, when you think about Jesus, is He supreme? Is He sufficient enough for you? How can we conclude that He is supreme and sufficient? Well, let's look at how Paul describes Jesus. He opens up this passage and and he's describing Jesus as being the originator of all things. He's saying that Jesus is the creator. We, we read in, in the very first chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning was, some of you have read that before, in the beginning was, two more people read it, one more time, in the beginning was, there, that's a little better, in the beginning was, God. And it tells us the story of creation and, and that 
Jesus or God created all things, but here Paul is telling us Jesus is the creator. Here's a few things that we, we pick up on here. He says he's the image of the invisible God. Now, the word image there is this Greek word, the one we get the word icon from. You know what an icon is? An icon is an image of something. Like, anybody have a coin? You know what a coin looks like. You can look and see what the image of uh, George Washington or whoever else is on coins looks like. Um, that is kind of what this definition means. But it's deeper than that, what this word really means. It's saying he is the exact image, meaning he is, he looks, he is all of God. But he's also, this word means, the manifestation of God. There, there's two meanings in that word icon. It is, he is the exact image of God, he is the manifestation of God, which means he is God in the flesh. Verse 15 and 16, it says that everything was made through Him and everything was made for Him. He made it all and He made it all for who? For Himself. God as the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all creation is to bring Him glory. When we refer back to Genesis chapter 1 and we read through the creation account, it says that God did what? Spoke. And everything came into existence. It all came from the Word of God. But then we read in John chapter 1, what is the Word of God? Jesus is the Word of God. John says that, it, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So as He speaks, He is the manifestation of this. Jesus isn't just a being. He's not just an angel as they were preaching to the Colossian church. He is, in fact, not only an image of God, He's the manifestation of God. He is God. And everything that has been created has been created through Jesus and for Jesus. You are here because you were created by Jesus. But you weren't created just to exist. You were created for Jesus, for His glory. Is that the Jesus that you know? Now there's some confusion that comes into this for some people. In, in this passage it says that Jesus is the firstborn. So how can that be? If Jesus was there in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So Jesus has always been there. And if Jesus created all things, if He's firstborn, does that not mean Jesus was created? That's one of the arguments that comes up against the deity of Jesus. But that's a shallow argument when you dig into the text and you actually start studying what was written here. Because the firstborn during biblical times did not mean what it means today. It didn't mean, oh, you're the first child. Now, oftentimes it was the first child who would be considered the firstborn, but we see evidence in Scripture of other people being claimed the firstborn. See, it's a rank. It's not that you're created first, it's your position. The position in the family of firstborn. You are, that's your rank if you are considered the firstborn. How do we know that that's not talking about creation? Well, even if you dig into old Jewish teachings, the, the rabbis, even in this time, they would refer to Yahweh, God the Father, 
as the firstborn over all things. And we know that God wasn't created. God always has been. God always will be. So that's a false assumption that he must have been created because they call him the firstborn. And in verse 17, we read this. And he is before all things. So he couldn't have been created because it says he is the creator. It says he was there when? Before all things. Jesus Christ always has been, always will be. He is a part of the Godhead. He, is of the same, he has the same rights and privileges as God the Father. He is the image manifestation of God the Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all God. He is God. He is the originator. And as being the firstborn, being preeminent over all things, He is the originator and He is supreme. Is that the God that you know? Why does this really matter? We all have questions in life, and this answers two of our most important questions as human beings. Why does my life matter, and why am I even here? Well, without a Creator, your life does not matter. And without a Creator, you are here simply as chance there is no purpose you are a vapor who will exist for a time and then disappear to never exist again with a creator if we answer the question who is jesus with this answer it is so important because it tells us why we are here why were you created you were created by him and for him why you are Created by Him. That's where we find our value. If you do not have a Creator, you have no intrinsic value. You are just a puff of smoke. If we have a Creator who is the God of all things, who is supreme, who is sufficient, and He created you, that is where we find value. It is not in how well you're doing at your job or in your school or in your sport or how well your family's getting along or how well your marriage is surviving or how good of a mom or a dad or a grandmother or a grandfather that you are. Your value is only found in the Creator, in Jesus Christ. He gives you value. You were created by Him and you were created for Him. He is the only reason for our being. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Whether you can pay your bills this month or not doesn't matter. Sure, it makes life more comfortable. I mean, we don't want to go without paying our bills. But that isn't what matters. He is what matters. He is our only reason for being. Now, I know that we've got all kinds of ideas out there teaching us how we came along. And we don't have time to dig into that. If anybody wants to really dig into that, talk to Randy Pafford because he's like the pro at this stuff. But let's just touch on one thing. Most people, even Christians, statistically accept evolution as fact. There's an Australian molecular biologist named Michael Denton who just recently said this, evolutionary theory is still and was in Darwinian time a highly speculative hypothesis entirely without direct factual support. 
as some of its advocates would have us believe. In other words, what this scientist, reputable scientist in Australia is saying is, it's a theory. There is nothing to support it. Even further, this guy, this uh, director of the Natural Museum of History in Chicago, which you would think he wouldn't say something like this, and from my understanding, this guy does not claim to be a Christian. His name is David Ropp, and he says, today we have fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. In other words, what just these two guys are saying who are reputable scientists is that the evolutionary theory is built on a house of cards that cannot stand on itself. There is no explanation for creation. There's even evidence recently that the Big Bang Theory is untrue. I was going to share all a video on that this morning, but it's a really long video, so maybe I'll send you a link. Um, It's really cool. Some of you are probably thinking, does that mean... Pastor, do you doubt science? No. I think God created everything, and God is the creator of science. Science is all based in fact. This, these theories are theory. There's not a scientist out there who will tell you they can prove any of these are true. They believe them wholeheartedly, but they cannot prove them to be true. If that's true, why are we not being told these things? Because if we put ourselves in the position of leaders in these areas, there's doubt that creeps in. And if that doubt is there, they have to be open to a creator. People don't want a creator. Because if we are open to a creator, that means there is someone, whatever it is, we believe it to be God the Father created everything through Jesus Christ. But whatever the creator is, there has to be accountability to the creator. That's what we see in this passage, that Jesus is supreme. He is enough. He's the originator. He is the creator. And we also see that He is the sustainer, that He holds all things together. We see that in verse 17. In Him, all things hold together. That means that every aspect of the universe is held in the hand of God. And He could easily let it go and it would fall apart. As I was doing the research on this passage this week, there's a scientist who says, and I wish I'd have got his name. I, I forgot to get his name and then I couldn't find the article again. But he says that when you look at creation, how it is held together makes no sense. This guy is not a Christian. He says there is some force holding it together that if it was to break or stop, it would fall apart, and he can't explain what the force is. I can explain it, though. Not because I'm smarter than that guy, but because I believe in the God of the Bible. He holds all things together. Everything in the universe is held together Ultimately, you are held together by the God of the universe. Your life would fall apart without a God. And some of you are like, my life's already fell apart multiple times. But he put it back together. Or you wouldn't be here. 
Maybe you're in a time right now where your life feels like it's falling apart, but He is holding you together. Whether you see it or not, He is holding all things together. He is where your hope comes from. Even in times where we feel doubt and we don't recognize that God is the Creator, that Jesus is the one who holds it all together, He's still holding it all together. The last thing we see in this passage There's really more. We could spend weeks just on these few verses. We see Jesus is the originator. Jesus is the sustainer. Jesus is also the peacemaker. Jesus is the peacemaker between us and a holy God. Verses 18 through 20. And He is the head of the body of the church, meaning He brought His people together. He is our head. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. In Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, again, stating He is God, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now there are those who read into this passage a heresy as well. This idea of universalism is sometimes read into this passage, but it's not what the passage teaches. If you are familiar with the idea of universalism, it is basically that everyone, whether they're followers of Jesus or not, will have a pathway to heaven, and they will get there whether they choose to follow Jesus or not in their lifetime. That Jesus will save everybody Period. But that's not at all what this passage really teaches. It's saying that he reconciles all things. But the way that word is used in the original text, it doesn't mean that he makes us good, that everything, as we're reconciled, it's not that the relationship is always fixed. Part of reconciliation is also defeat. For those who don't accept Jesus, they are defeated. Their reconciliation in the, in the whole grand scheme of things isn't to be in relationship, it's to be separated. That is how they are reconciled to Jesus. And he says, all of the fullness of God, meaning all of God's attributes, all of God's being, dwell in Him. It says, He brings peace by the blood of His cross. That's the verse I want to hang on as we finish today. He brings peace by the blood of the cross. I don't know what your relationship with Jesus looks like. I would imagine it's all over the place in this room. Maybe even in your own families you see different ways that the relationship with Jesus plays out. But here's what Paul is saying, and he's just opening up this letter, fighting this heresy that's being taught. If Jesus isn't supreme, he is not sufficient for you. If he's not everything, then this is all pointless. If he is not God, if his his sacrifice on the cross didn't make peace with a holy God, it isn't enough. The implication of the passage is that Jesus is our greatest authority. He is our final authority. The implication is 
No matter what you're chasing, no matter where you're trying to find value, Jesus is enough. That is ultimately what Paul is saying. Jesus is sufficient. Is that really, not who you may say it is, but is that really who you think Jesus is? And if it is, would other people say that about you? Do you live your life like Jesus is supreme and sufficient? In our Wednesday discussion the other day, I brought up a term called practical atheism. I think it was in the Wednesday discussion. Was that when I brought it up? Practical atheism is basically saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, but my life doesn't look like it. So I'm living in a way that shows I don't trust Jesus, even though with my mouth I say I do. Are you living in a way that shows you trust Jesus? Are you... Is there sin in your life that you know is sin and that you refuse to let go of? Are there areas in your life where you know you're not trusting God and you refuse to trust God because you think you can fix it? Or you think your way's better? Or you think you can work harder and take care of it? Do you live like Jesus is supreme and sufficient? And if not, you need to confess that. Even if it's just one small area of your life where you know you're not giving it up to Jesus, you're not letting Him have control, you're not showing that He is supreme, that He is enough, you need to confess that because that means we're following a distorted image, picture of who Jesus is. And that image of Jesus, that idea of Jesus as just being a part of life, but not life ultimately for us, it cannot save you. And it will not add meaning to your life. It's just a feel-good Jesus that makes us feel better about ourselves. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 says that if we want to follow Jesus, we are to take up our cross and follow Him. Meaning we give it all up. We are willing to die to self in order to follow Jesus. He is enough. He must be supreme. Is He your final authority? We close this morning. We close. I want to read this passage to you. Who is Jesus? Here's what we read. The prophet Isaiah wrote, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. When he speaks of the Lord, he's speaking of a Jesus who had not yet been born, but already existed. Isaiah sees him in his vision. In the train of his robe, filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. I want to read that one more time to you. But I want you all to bow your heads, close your eyes. And I want you to imagine this. Knowing that our, word, our pictures in our heads are not enough, it's, we can never really fully imagine this. But put yourself in the place of Isaiah and what he sees. I saw the Lord, Jesus Christ, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Is Jesus really who you think He is? Your concept of Jesus, does that encompass you? Is that what your Jesus looks like? Or are you living the Jesus is my friend, Jesus is my homeboy kind of life? He'll be there when I need Him. The rest of the time, I'm good. Who is Jesus? He is God. The creator of all things. The sustainer of all things. The peacemaker between us and a holy God. 